0: Amen. Yes, Father, we thank You that among Your deeds that we recount today is changing our hearts and fixing our souls to our rock, Jesus Christ. You have done valiantly in saving for Yourself a people by the sovereign power and work of Your grace alone. Not by any works or any effort on our part, may we boast, except Christ crucified. Our only hope and our eternal salvation secured by his work. Christ was crucified for us. He rose again. He ever rules and lives and reigns to secure for himself a people and to establish a kingdom without end. We pray, Lord, that as the seed of his word goes forth through the proclamation of the same this morning, as we have sung of his exploits in these songs today, that roots would grow deeper still in the hearer, to streams of living water that would burst forth in your due time a fruit to the glory of your name. May the fruit of this service today, Lord, produce in us a heart of desire and heart and desire to glorify you, to serve you, to honor you and obey you, to walk in your ways, to teach others, to train our children, to nurture and admonish the next generation and the good deeds of our Lord and the great gospel of our Savior. May it grow, Lord, as we seek to shine. May your Fruit abound, Lord, in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, beaming forth to the world who needs it so that you might join, Lord, or that our ranks may be joined soon by those who turn from their sins, embrace Christ as their Savior and seek to worship Him in spirit and in truth with us today. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified in the proclamation of your word today so that we might be built up and trimmed and fitted as living stones upon our foundation, Jesus Christ the praise of His name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. What a joy and privilege it is for us as people to turn to the Lord's Word today and to find their words of refuge and strength, the revelation of our Almighty God. In our Psalm a Month series, Second Sunday, Let's continue in our series in the Songs of Ascent by turning to Psalm 125. If your Bible is handy, would you join me in Psalm 125 today? In a moment, we'll read God's Word. We'll stand for the hearing of the Word. The title of this morning's message is Mountains of Zion, plural. The picture of mountains provides an illustration and occasion for the inspiration of this psalm, and we'll explore a bit what that might mean in our text today. Mount Zion itself, where the temple was located, where Jerusalem was built, serves as a fixture in the geography, a metaphor, of God's relationship with man. This is an abiding picture throughout the course of the Scriptures, and it's touched upon in our text. The aim of this morning's message is to behold the hope of that mountain, behold the hope of Zion fulfilled in Jesus Christ. With that introduction... And standing in reverence for the hearing of God's Word, would you rise as you are able, and let us consider these five scriptures today. From Psalm 125, a song of ascent. Verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, let the, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, o, God, o Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The vantage point of mountains in proximity or near, around relationship to Jerusalem serves as a stage for proclamations of God's Word, revelations of His nature, character, and His Word to man throughout the course of Scripture. Think of things that happened on mountains. And by the way, you could do a little further study on this, perhaps in your family worship this week. Think of the proclamations and God revealing Himself on Mount Sinai and Mount Carmel, for instance. Mount Sinai, we might touch upon a little uh, further in the message, but there the Ten Commandments were given in hand to God's servant prophet Moses. Think of Mount Carmel, where the showdown between the idols of Baal worshipers, 400 strong, their priesthood there assembled, and one lone prophet of God, Elijah. And then the challenge, whoever's God answers with fire, let all the people worship and serve him. And so God does consume the sacrifice and even the water around the altar. And thus at Mount Carmel and Mount Sinai, the power, the authority and the glory of God is proclaimed. Think of the purposes of God revealed in other mountains like Mount Moriah, Calvary, which is a corollary, perhaps even the same place where the covenant son is led up to be crucified, to be sacrificed in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message of mountains in part throughout covenant history, throughout the record of God's word. We can see in our text today how mountains inspire our author. Imagine you're on a journey of ascent up to Mount Zion to worship him. You're in this entourage and you get come over the last crest, that last hill that blocks your view from Jerusalem. As you ascend to this place and you look into the valley, it's easy for us to imagine that this might be the very position which, which our author, which inspired our author to pen this psalm. Perhaps he had been on his way for a long time and at great expense. Maybe it was his first occasion to make this pilgrimage to God's holy hill. He traverses, crosses at great uh, length hill and valley until he finally reaches this elevated position on the outskirts of the region. And this affords him his very first view of the holy city, He sees the temple glistening on that distant hilltop. It stands on a hill surrounded by seven other peaks, and one of these affords him perhaps this view of God's house, God's temple in the distance. Historians have noted how the surrounding mountain range shielded Jerusalem in part from stormy winds that might assail them, and then also from attacks from enemies. There's a picture here. A secure position of mountains like this serves as a metaphor for the promises of God. For those who are established in the covenant, that is to say, they're shielded from the stormy winds of the enemy blowing us like chaff away with every wind of doctrine. No, rather than the stormy winds of false ideas and the sins that would easily destroy, beset and condemn us to hell, We are protected by the surrounding mountain range of God's promises from what would otherwise destroy or by the invading armies or enemies that might seek to make short work of us so we can relate to the secure position that the psalmist proclaims that Mount Zion is. Not only is Mount Zion on a mountain, but it's surrounded by the same. The nature of God, like the nature of God, mountains can be a terrifying presence, or a place of highest security, depending on one's situation. Psalm 125 stands as both, or stands for both of those messages. Mount Zion stands as a confrontation to some and a great encouragement to others. It depends where your heart is at. I was reminded of a great mountain occasion, a terrifying circumstance, um, an act of God in nature, That happened in AD 79, Mount Vesuvius exploded. And it's one of those fascinating moments in history, particularly because in recent years or some hundred years ago or something, not sure when, um, people had the idea in this ash as they were excavating around the the Pompeii area to pour plaster into a hole. And then you get these eerie castings of the last moments of life for individuals and even animals before. They're utterly destroyed by what? The explosion of a mountain. The terrifying eruption of that volcano, Mount Vesuvius, uh, introduced the judgment of God on wicked cities and buried them in an avalanche of ash and mud and heat in split seconds. I was reminded this week there was a library. There was, I don't Herculaneum or something was a villa by the sea and the uh, relative of Caesar at the time had this palace, you know, alongside the Mediterranean. Well, there too, It's entirely buried in ash, partially excavated now. And among the findings, there's 800 scrolls that cannot be opened because they're instantly fused together by this dramatic act of volcanic eruption and explosion. Uh, Incidentally, modern technology is trying to quote unroll those scrolls by scanning them and seeing, you know, what is caught in or what um, was frozen in time 1900 years ago in this library. Well, I guarantee what you'll find frozen in time is people going about their business. In fact, one of these scrolls they've partially uh, interpreted says as much. They're going about their business, enjoying their fine wines and foods and the pleasures of life. And all of a sudden, a mountain erupted and they didn't have time to escape the judgments of God. Why? Ultimately speaking, if they went to hell in their sin at this moment of reckoning, it was because they were not fastened to Jesus Christ. They did not have the secure position that Mount Zion represents. So that's a picture from history and a picture from the scriptures of, the, of mountains and what they represent. Either a terrifying force of judgment. One thinks of a volcano and its power and explosions. We'll touch on another moment of terrifying uh, judgment related to mountains in a minute or a place of high secured fortification like a castle on a hill that our enemies can't attack. These are by way of introduction a few of the images that might be in the back of our mind as we seek to dig into this text. Psalm 125 a heading consequential situations. Perhaps this psalm could be divided into three situations relative to Mount Zion. We consider today the surroundings The surroundings of Zion, what are they and what do they represent? We also consider what is resting upon Zion. Is it the scepter of wickedness or is it the peace of God? Then thirdly, we consider who is turning aside from Zion versus who is turning toward Zion. And sort of this picture language, this situational language relative to Zion makes the psalmist point, poetically and theologically, consider the surroundings. Consider what's resting upon Zion and consider those who turn toward and those who turn away and be exhorted from the Scriptures. First of all, surroundings. Verse 1 and 2, Psalm 125, in the songs of, song of ascent, which means song of elevation or rising, or as we've mentioned before, traveling up this plain to the elevated place of God's meeting with man, we find the psalmist confessing this, those who trust in the Lord, verse 1, are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Eternity, permanence, elevated place and trust. We might ask this question of this psalm, what anchors us to Mount Zion? What fastens us spiritually securely to an immovable location? Well, he answers that in the first verse. But to expand this picture, let me touch upon the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. I'm sure you're familiar with these. At the close of the Great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself uses rock versus sand metaphor to illustrate something similar. What is the foundation of your soul? What is the security and assurance of your life? As you face the inevitability of death, do you know that you will live forever? Or will you enter forever into the judgments of God? The horrific eventuality be an object of His just wrath forever. Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The psalmist is saying it in a similar way. A wise man beholds Mount Zion and fastens his soul to what uh, that place represents. Jesus similarly says, a wise man does not build his house on the sand, a foolish man does, instead upon the rock. In 25, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the, on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And Jesus illustrates the difference in this picture of rock versus sand as foundational material. What will secure us? And the psalmist, one in, the psalmist, the author of Psalm 125, answers the question, what secures us to the rock? Who are those who have the assurance in Jesus' words and from the psalms that they will stand when the storm comes? They are those who trust, keyword, trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So I build houses. I remember seeing in an article about home building in the mountains a way to establish, to use the mountain to your advantage as a secure location. A company had developed like auger locations. They would take hardened steel and they would auger or drill into the rock in either an epoxy and then that place where that uh, shaft would be fixed or digging deep into the bedrock of this area, you could establish a secure location to fasten your building. Uh, Nikki told me that one of the first recorded or the first recorded uh, tornado ever in Wisconsin in the month of February hit the other day, and this house was damaged. And we're familiar with these weather events even in our own area here, and precautions are taken in the building of buildings to literally anchor them to the rock and in our case it's usually a man-made slab like concrete or footings that dig deep within the soil and so what fastens the building to those footings are these anchor bolts that we use to tie in our framing and so we screw those down and this, now this house is secure against weather events that otherwise might literally lift it off its moorings so the question again using that analogy what is that anchor bolt that fastens us to Christ that makes us secure in life's difficulties, trials, temptations, and otherwise overwhelming storms? Well, the psalmist identifies it quite simply with one word, trust. Your faith in the Lord is the anchor bolt that fastens you to Him as your foundation. Trust, faith, it is the posture of the soul that securely attaches us to the rock of our assurance this is how we build our life upon the rock. It is by trusting Jesus. It is by trusting in his blood to wash away our sins. Trusting in his care to watch over us against the risks and the difficulties of life. Trusting that when we die, that his, as, the reward, as partial reward of his sufferings, secure himself of people who worship him in glory, is our certification, our heavenly uh, if, you, if you will, ticket, or is the uh, assurance, it is our certificate of authenticity that our soul belongs in Zion, if you will. It is our visa to glory, the gospel. Jesus contrasts the rock and the sand in his building metaphor. Faith attaches us to the mountain securely. We can contrast this faith, that is, with anxiety. I've mentioned this before. I think application in this regard is worth repeating it strikes me that anxiety is rooted is rooted in a disturbing awareness of our human frailties anxiety is this notion stress often a related idea in the soul is not trusting there's some rattling where the anchor bolt ought to be tight there's this failure to have assurance that we are rooted to something fixed and secure It's the nature of our existence as finite creatures, uh, and there's sort of a paradox. We, We have limitations, and we in our stress and anxiety are painfully aware of those, yet we also possess an eternal soul. We have the ability in our mind to conceive of things far beyond our ability to secure, and far beyond the promises of our own mere existence here. As human beings made in the image of God and with, he, with uh, him giving us these faculties, we can conceive of the next life. But in our frailty and limitations left to our own devices, we don't know how to secure our eternal hope, right? Also, as mere humans, we can have a sense of the meaning and purpose of life uh, beyond living just by day to day, which doesn't satisfy this inner longing and yearning in the soul. This drive for meaning, purpose, and legacy represents something often elusive to us and outside of our grasp. Spiritual realities are similar. Justice and the social order, again, or what-if scenarios, the counterfactuals of life. What if this happens, then what will we do? Threats, moral dilemmas, philosophical possibilities, origin, morality, meaning, and destiny. Those questions of philosophy all these things fall into this category of, thing, of things that are real, and are, and, but they are just beyond the reach, or oftentimes far, eternally beyond the reach of our human capacity to assure. So here we are, creatures with finite abilities and limitations, and yet concerned with these problems and issues and realities of life that are bigger than us. So what do we do? Well, it strikes me that there are at least three options. Number one, we can deny all these things I just said and reduce the scope of our concern to mere animal instincts. The Bible calls this living according to the flesh. We simply put out of our mind anything that's beyond questions of meaning or eternity or purpose. And we decide, oh, we're just gonna be concerned about our appetites, where we're going to eat. We'll eat, drink, and be merry. We'll embrace the... um, Promise of tomorrow that my job can secure for me that weekend will uh, you know the weekend coming around the corner the next family vacation will limit our goals and our aspirations to those kinds of things, mere instincts or appetites, and, and these things aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but if they represent the scope of our vision or our ambitions, they are fall woefully short of both what God has designed for us, and the reality of bigger and most pressing questions and issues. Second option. We can become deluded by idolatry and figments of our imagination. This is the ancients did this a lot. We could build a pyramid to try to secure our position, for instance, and connect with spiritual realities and entertain a dumb idea that false gods can give us hope These promises can also come by way of human achievement, probably more common in our day. That we satisfy ourselves that through human achievement or some idols, that that which is beyond our control will be secured. But then there's the third way. And this third option is what the psalmist finds as his refuge, what Jesus proclaims in Matthew 7. And that is for a finite, frail, fallen, sinful human being to trust thoroughly the sovereign creator, the architect of history, the one who has established providentially the orbit of every single molecule and atom and electron holds this universe together. He is the one who we can trust because he holds all things in his hand. He is unlimited in his knowledge and unlimited in his power. He is the one who is represented by this mountain, Zion, When you come to a mountain, you realize it was there long before I was born, and it'll be there long after. That's like God. God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That's not to say He has a beginning and He has an end. It is to say long before anything else was, eternally before God was. And eternally past, beyond the last of the finite things, are wrapped up and had reached their shelf life, yet the Lord will continue. So if you are anchored to the eternal then you have ultimate hope. The psalmist confesses this when he says, those who trust in the Lord, that is Yahweh. Yahweh in the original Hebrew is that name of God that indicates his eternality, the I am. That is, I have no beginning and I have no end. I simply am, I always will be. I am the Lord who promises and keeps his promises eternally. This is the kind of trust that attaches us to the anchor of our souls. And ultimately, this is the kind of trust, this is the kind of faith that secures us against the threat and the sin of anxiety. We can anchor ourselves. We can attach our souls, fix them upon the one who knows everything, who has all power, has secured our future, who inhabits Mount Zion, and when we do, when we turn to Him, and when we find Him to be our, our, our all in all, our assurance and our hope, we are sending our stakes, pounding them down. We are pouring the concrete. We are attaching ourselves, those anchor bolts, if you will, to the Lord who never moves and is unshakable. So the surroundings of Mount Zion, these mountain pictures, remind the psalmist of this type of thing. There are other mountains in view. Those who trust in Mount Zion are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Verse two, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So now we move from Mount Zion to the surrounding mountains. Did a bit of internet research. And as it happens, uh, Jerusalem is like a hill surrounded by even higher hills or mountains, depending on the way you describe it. Well, here is kind of a unique situation, and as you do a little research and you see these peaks that no doubt the psalmist is referring to and their names, which they still retain in large part today, you find that these mountains are significant and they correspond to moments in the Bible. That is to say that mountains surrounding Mount Zion or Jerusalem oftentimes were symbolic of the means by which the terms of the covenant were assured or established. So Mount Zion is surrounded by other mountains, which provide protection, as we said, against storms and against invaders. But Mount Zion is also surrounded by other mountains, and many of them symbolically represent the terms of the covenant assured. Let me give you an example or two. First of all, Mount Sinai. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, so I don't know how close Mount Sinai would be to Mount Zion, but it would certainly be an example of mountains and their symbolic importance, which I take to be an extension, an application of the psalmist's words here. In Exodus 19, we read of the Lord visiting his people in fire, in the sound of trumpet, and in a terrifying revelation. Here in verses 12 and 13, let's pick up on this moment. "'You shall set limits for the people all around,' the Lord says to Moses, saying, "'Take care not to go up into the mountain "'or touch the edge of it. "'Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. "'No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. "'Whether beast or man, he shall not live. "'When the trumpet sounds a long blast,' They shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he said, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 18, it was wrapped in smoke and fire, we read. It trembled greatly. An earthquake... Fire, smoke, lightning, we've referenced, of course, these moments before. It was a revelation of the Lord that required consecration or else. Uh, Setting yourself apart, being ceremonially prepared for this moment was essential. And then also, in some sense, you better keep your distance. There was a line where if you crossed it approaching that mountain, unless you were the anointed servant of God, Moses himself, you would be struck dead. Mountains surrounding Mount Zion were not always pictures of a secure location and the abiding presence of God. That is to say that before you can have permission to touch the mountain, you must first be made holy. You must be consecrated. Your heart must change. The mountains surrounding Zion were not always the picture of reassurance, but they were also the terrifying reality of the law. And this was to teach the people that you are not prepared to go to Zion and you touch it at your own peril. And that there is no hope and assurance to be gained there until something fundamentally changes. What's the difference between Sinai and Zion? Why was the one an untouchable location where God's holiness would incinerate you in a moment? And in the other, the gates of the temple were open? so that the worshipers might come and behold God in, at this time, his Shekinah glory presence, this cloud presence of God right there with the people. What made the difference? It was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was the worship order that was instituted at Mount Zion. Someone must die in your place before you can touch the mountain. This is what the surrounding mountains around Zion represented So that now, as the psalmist looks over the crest and he says, there's a mountain I can touch. There's a mountain that I can be secure in. There's a mountain that I can ascend, the Psalms of Ascent. And I can do so with the hope, not that I will be killed, but that I will be saved and secure. The cost of this assurance is the death of the sacrifice in his place. Other mountains. One mountain really close to Zion is Mount Moriah. Do you remember that one? Back, we don't, we don't need to turn there uh, this morning necessarily in the interest of time. In Genesis 22, on your own time, just be reminded of that mountain. The Lord tells Abraham, I have a journey for you. Take your son, your only son, the beloved son of promise in your old age and go to Mount Moriah and bring him up with the instrument of sacrifice, the wood for burning him, it come to find out, up to that precipice, up to that summit. Abraham does so. And kids, you know the rest of the story, Right? The altar is prepared, the wood is arranged, and does Isaac die upon that altar? Who is sacrificed on that altar, kid? Was it Isaac or something else? Uh, That's correct. I hear a lamb in the audience. That's right, a ram. So a substitute animal is offered in the place of Isaac on this mountain, and this is an early picture of the requirements for ascending the hill of the Lord to be in his presence and welcomed in, into his holy hill, into his temple, into his house, to be joined in his, or with him in his habitation, that is to live where God lives or to be welcomed and feast at his table. The mountains in proximity to Zion were a message proclaiming the gospel. Without a substitute sacrifice, there would be no touching the place of God's holy presence, let alone fastening yourself there Mount Moriah, stands or Mount Moriah. This place of sacrifice represents Isaac's substitute, provided symbolically by way of a ram, and later this would be substantially fulfilled by way of Jesus Christ, the Covenant Son. Historians surmise. I'm inclined to agree that on that same hill, there was another Covenant Son that was led by God the Father in this case. And upon that summit, he was killed. He was hung on the cruel cross of Calvary, carrying the instrument of his own destruction up to that place where he would be sacrificed. And because of this, the mountains surrounding Zion, we have entry into the presence of God. We are accepted into his holy hill, if you will. We are able to worship him in this place here in spirit and in truth have it be a real reassuring confidence and assurance for our soul that we will go to heaven one day because the mountains surrounding Zion in what they pictured proclaimed the gospel that a sacrifice must die so that we can ascend the holy mountain. Other mountains too in Zechariah 14 corresponding to Matthew 24, Mount of Olives is in view and here is represented the seat of the Messiah's judgment. It symbolized the power and the authority he has demonstrated on his day of reckoning. And then Jesus would sit on that very hill, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and he would instruct his people to flee to these very mountains around the rim of this Jerusalem location on the day when he brought the consequences of his justice and anger to bear against the unrepentant sinners in A.D. 70 who refused to recognize that he himself was the true substitute sacrifice. Those who continued to deny the presence of their Messiah and offered in blasphemy to him, animals, rams, and lambs, and goats, trusting in their shed blood to symbolically cover their sins. No, after that curtain was torn, the veil was ripped in twain from top to bottom by the almighty power of God uh, signaling that entry into his presence is through Christ alone. From that moment on, Jesus Christ now sits, if you will, upon the Mount of Olives, judging those who are sheep and goats and separating the wheat from the chaff and declaring that in him and him alone, one can be anchored to Mount Zion. And so those who took refuge in the word of Jesus Christ, listen to him their prophet, their savior, their Messiah, and their sacrifice. And when the judgments of God came, they did flee to the hills and they were saved. And here again is a picture of God's word as our assurance and our refuge. If we cling to him, if we cling to his word, we can flee to his mountain and be safe. Mountains are a picture of defense and permanence. One more analogy as we explore these first two verses. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. We have this trust that secures us to the mountain. We have these surrounding mountains that are themselves significant. And then we have this picture in the permanence of a mountain of a strong place of defense. This is a universal symbol all through human history, by the way. We've mentioned this in part before, but there's this picture that represents a transcending permanence even among the ancients. A a mountain is what um, in this sense? It's the place, it pictures a place where heaven meets earth. So this highest place is a place where heaven meets earth. So given the notions of pyramid building back in the time, you can now understand The spiritual significance of these structures, albeit how rebellious they were. What did they represent? Construction efforts, presuming man's ability to elevate himself to the place where God would meet man or where heaven would meet earth. If man, by his own efforts, could ascend to a godlike plane, if the promise of the serpent proved true that we can be as God by our own devices, by our own means, by our own ideas, by our own building, then this pyramid represents a hope for us. Contrast this with the plans that God gave to Moses for Mount Zion. I've asked myself in times past, why so many chapters of the scripture are given for the schematics of the tabernacle? Why so much detail? Why so much depth? Why so much precision was required in this tent, this temporal place where God would symbolically meet the people and his real presence would abide? Well, I believe it's because it's the anti-pyramid. These were the blueprints of Zion that were given from heaven to Moses. And those who built this place did so anointed and commissioned by the Holy Spirit. This was to teach us that none of our efforts, none of our ideas, none of our own building plans Can ever bridge the gap between heaven and earth. Remember what I was saying before? Trying to solve that anxiety problem by all these other means, delusions and things. uh, The latest and greatest idea, the latest self help book, the latest proclamation from an expert, the latest idea of warmed over false religion, whatever mystical notions are popular today. The trends that go around and around, the waves of every wind of doctrine that blow across the sea of man's lost and desperate, hopeless, helpless condition. All of these things are the latest pyramid efforts to build to God. But instead, Mount Zion represents that place of defense and permanence. It is established, immovable, and will stand forever. Why? Because it is the blueprints for Jacob, it represents the blueprints for Jacob's ladder given from heaven to man. God supplies the way of salvation. God establishes the place where heaven meets earth. God restores the otherwise unbridgeable gap between a hopeless sinner deserving his judgments and the glorious presence of eternity one day. When we in Christ ascend Mount Zion's hill, we have the assurance, that we will ascend, if you will. These songs of ascent commemorate the same, that hill of God's presence, or Jacob's ladder, to be with him forever, because this is something that God has done. And only what God builds, what God establishes, is a defense against the last enemy, death, and, it is, and is permanent, as he is, even unto eternity. Oh, the glorious promises of Psalm 125.1. Those who trust in Mount Zion... They cannot be moved, but they abide forever. That is to say, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. To be as permanent as God is, that is eternal life. It turns out that eternity or permanence uh, is, eternal life is a communicable attribute, if you will. That is, it's an element of who God is that can be shared by us. When we repent of our sins and turn to Him, we live forever in glory. God grants to us his permanence, his eternity in the gospel. Praise his name. That's the consequential situation of the surroundings and some of what they might represent. Now let's consider what is resting upon Zion. Verse three, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. There's this question that's that's kind of raised by the imagery here. What rule, what authority rests upon Zion, land allotted to the people? This would be, in the first instance, a reference to, of course, the promised land, the social order of God's world and God's uh, kingdom, God's nation that Israel would represent. So what is a scepter? Kids, who holds a scepter in his hand? Can you remind us? What kind of officer holds a scepter? What kind of person? Shout out if a king, thank you. So a king holds a rod in ancient times, and sometimes uh, remnants of this exist even in cultures today. And that staff is a picture of his authority, his right to rule. So you guys remember the story of Esther, King Ahasuerus, and then the prettiest lady who ends up being his bride, Esther. She has an issue she needs to take up with the king. She goes into his presence. And I think uh, literally you can read in Scripture that his scepter that symbol of his authority and favor is extended. She reaches out and she touches literally this rod and then the king says, what is your request? So what that scepter represents is mutual favor then. It's the authority of the king and then there's the reaching out of the subject. And when those two meet, there's a relationship that is established. And so you see here, since there's a relationship between the authority and the subjection of the people, is imperative that the scepter that rests upon Zion, that is God's people, be ruled by righteousness. In fact, all people ought to be ruled by righteousness. The scepter of wickedness, therefore, the psalmist prophesies, shall not inevitably, eternally rest, if you will, on the land allotted to the righteous. Why? Lest the righteous stretch out his hand to do wrong. This is, so the psalmist is picturing here an importance to recognize the relationship between even political authorities or the way a society is ordered, the civil authority, and our worship. Do not stretch out your hands to unrighteousness in any realm. Remember that there is a relationship between the worship of the Almighty God and His Word that is binding for everyone and every sphere of life. So we live in a situation, much like the psalmist did that, I'm sure, where there was a great disconnect between corruption in the civil order and then the worship that God required in, at Mount Zion and at his temple. And there was a problem there, and he recognizes it. So what he encourages his readers to do is to recognize that that civil order must come into uh, alignment, must submit to Jesus Christ, the true king. In the meantime, pray that that would happen, and in the meantime, do not reach out your hand to wickedness. In other words, set your sights on Mount Zion as your chief point of help and hope. And do not, uh, uh, no matter the pressures of culture and the order of your day, submit and surrender to evil around you. This is the wicked scepter imagery pictured here. The psalmist reminds us that unrighteousness and 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 the curse of wicked rule attends those who have broken covenant with the Lord. So recognize, so long as there is wicked rule and that injustice is normative, rather than the exception in society, that repentance needs to be proclaimed. When the seat of authority in society is corrupt, their positions become indefensible. Also, the psalmist wants to remind the people, so long as the authority is wicked, that strong defenses and the surroundings of Zion are little help. But for those who are anchored in their soul and in their society, the righteousness and the glory of Jesus Christ... Then that is a strong defense. When righteousness and integrity rule the day, the fortunes of the people are exponentially assured, like the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. A prayer for our day, that the Lord, through his people, pointing to Zion as a place of assurance, would remind others not to submit or surrender to wicked rule but to uh, recognize false claims to authority and instead to build their lives and anchor them on the word of God. The word of God is where our lives can be securely fastened and all other false claims will eventually fail. There's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, some commentators, and they uh, have this to say about this scripture. I find it helpful. Sin's dominion shall not permanently come between the believer and his inheritance. This was the hope of Psalm 125.3, that even though there was wickedness in the land, not everybody had set their sights on Zion. Nevertheless, sin's dominion shall not permanently come between the believer and his inheritance. So it's important to analyze what is resting upon the land. Is it the scepter of wickedness? Or is it this unified value of what Zion represents? The promises of Canaan were by covenantal arrangement. The psalmist recognized this and it undergirds the context of his song. He recognized that to the degree that his people had broken covenant with the Lord, that there was an issue, that it was an unsettling reality for those who dwell in the land. And we see that his words played out in due course. In examples like Nehemiah 9, 26 to 38, the people return because the scepter of, wicked, of wickedness had actually led to the exile of the people. And then they come back and they rebuild the house. The prophets say, why are your homes paneled and beautiful and the house of the Lord li- yet lies in ruins? Don't you know that your defenses are weak so long as this is the case? Samballat and Tobiah and other haters from the area seek to discourage the uh, work of the Lord there. But when the people returned to build the temple and then corresponding to that, they took sword and trowel, defended themselves and build the perimeter around the people. This was a picture of dual strength. The society was grounded in the worship of the almighty God had strong defenses and thus Israel confessed as they returned to the covenant, the priority of Zion that they would stand so long as his word was enforced and was their rule. Is God's word your rule for your life? We live in a society that increasingly fails that standard, but what about your home? What about your individual decisions and the affairs of your day-to-day life? The promises of Psalm 125 stand there as well. Is God's word your rule? If it is, then the practical defenses of your life as well as the focus of your family and the order of your affairs, you become like a mountain surrounded by mountains. Then I like to think of surrounded by mountains, surrounded by mountains. It's almost this exponential picture in the poetic language here of the strength of God's word to defend us when we anchor ourselves in him. So what is resting upon the land and where do we place our hope? The psalmist's prayer and his confession, profession is, that rather than the scepter of wickedness resting upon the land, he cries out that peace would be upon Israel. Verse five, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Either the scepter of wickedness will rest upon the land or the peace of God will rest upon the land. He recognizes the distinction and calls in his song for the peace of God to be the priority, attention, and conviction of the people. Finally, there's this imagery of turning towards Zion or the posture of turning away. In verses 4 and 5, do good, he cries, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Um, In Exodus 22, as the covenant is being laid out according to God's law. There's categories of this arrangement that fall under the heading of sanctions and blessing. That is, based on the people's adherence to the word and law of God, they would be blessed or they would be punished. And the psalmist, many, much of the scriptures is oriented according to this truth. To the degree that people turn away from Mount Zion, may they just keep walking. To the degree that they turn to Mount Zion, may they be saved and join us in praise. What the psalmist is crying for here is that there would be a distinction drawn, that there would be a separation, that there would be a clear uh, demarcation, discrimination, if you will, between the wickedness that leads to death and righteousness that leads to life. He's praying, that is, according to the promises of covenant, blessing for those whose attention is on God's provision for salvation in Mount Zion, and then judgment and a separation of those who refuse to bow the knee to him. It's an appeal to the law of God under conditions that he faced at the time, and we can certainly relate to. The psalmist recognizes that in the course of God's history, of history as it unfolds according to God's providence, that he has purifying intentions, Often we think of sanctification primarily as our own lives coming into conformity with the Lord. But the Lord is also purifying in other ways beyond that. History is marching forward towards God's ends and according to His government in such a way that will eventually separate the wheat from the chaff. The influence of wickedness upon a society can do two things. It can serve to stir the righteous to repentant and vigilant prayers. The influence of that wicked scepter ought to stir us, so long as there's wickedness in our land, to penitent, repentant, and vigilant prayers of the righteous for deliverance, even as that wickedness can flush out the evil and turn aside and lead away those uh, according to their crooked ways. And due course, the people of God stand to benefit from the consequences of Christ's rule. And his holy purpose is a separation is taking place. The wheat and the tares grow together for a season. But as we see in Matthew 13, there comes the day of the Lord when they are separated. That final day is anticipated in the progress of providence in history. And it's like the Lord shakes things up and begins that separation, even early sometimes. Times, a time itself, trials, circumstances, Uh, they can initiate the separation process, if you will. What are these things? These are instruments in God's discriminating judgments to purify for himself a people. In the course of life, there tends to be a growing distance between the righteous and the wicked as a consequence of his judgments, sanctification, respectively. And though there may be hard times that visit God's people, God can use those to shake the lost awake. Let's pray that that happens so that as there's cause for concern in life, in circumstance, even in personal trials, it would give us the opportunity to point the world, to point our families, to point the lost, if they would listen to Mount Zion. Trust the Lord, anchor your soul there because one thing that your life and this world has certainly demonstrated is there is no faith or only a fool would place his faith in the idols, the achievements, and false promises of anything short of the one who created and sustains this world in the first place and has sent his son to save for himself a people. Look to Mount Zion, trust in the Lord. Those who trust in him are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, So the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. And in spite of the scepter of wickedness that may endure for a time, let it not rest upon Your people, O Lord, upon the land allotted to the righteous. Lord, let us not stretch out our hands to do wrong, but instead peace be upon Israel as we look to You. An example of how this song can be used in our own prayers. Let's close in prayer and pray that the Lord would help us to apply these scriptures moving forward. We thank you, Lord, for your holy word and for the picture of Mount Zion and what it holds out by way of promise and assurance for us. We thank you that in Jesus we can ascend your holy hill and the place of your dwelling with man is secured because our sins are atoned for. We recognize with the psalmist that the scepter of wickedness rests yet upon our land. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would instead bring peace but that you would do so by the purifying, convicting word of truth in the gospel. May there be a revival in our day. May hope in Christ alone once again, by the uncompromised proclamation of your church. We pray that your spirit would amplify that message, that others might join us in worship, in spirit, and in truth forever and ever. In the meantime, Lord, let us be faithful to stand in Christ to secure ourselves to His, the eternal hope that He has secured for us in His death on Calvary. We confess that You are the Lord, the I Am, the Alpha and the Omega, that in You, all things exist, of You, through You, and to You are all things. And we thank You, Lord, that You can be trusted and we have the record of Your faithfulness in Scripture and the testimony of our lives to remind us of this. For these we are thankful, thankful, May we worship you in light of these truths and be obedient to the cause and call of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.